Good morning, folks. You're very welcome to our service this morning. And uh, we just want to run through a few announcements here as people are still filtering in. Uh, as you know, Sam is away on holidays at the minute. And next week, we're going to have Eric Hughes, who was our youth pastor here for quite a few years. We're going to have him back next week. So I hope you'll all come out next week to hear Eric. Uh, at the end of our service this morning, there is prayer ministry takes place at the little table here beside the organ. So if you have something that you would really like prayed for, please do come up to the front here and the folks there will pray with you. It's a confidential service, and uh, the, the, the people will not give you advice. All they will do is just pray for whatever your, your issue is. So please do that. Uh, as you see there with Salmon Holidays, if you do have a bit of a pastoral emergency, please contact your elder or give Stuart a ring on the number there in the order of service. Number four, the next Living Well meeting is going to be a garden party, which sounds very grand, down in Alan and Heather's home in Bray. There is one possible issue there in that that is the same day as the air show in Bray. So if you're going to come, you might be better to leave a little bit earlier just in case there's a lot of traffic. But hopefully there shouldn't be too many problems in, in reaching Alan and Heather's. Um, and number five as well. We're still looking for volunteers to help clean the church during this month while Marcus and Alina are away on holidays. So if you can help out with that, please speak to, uh, to Stuart. I think the rest of them are pretty much, they've been there for a few weeks. Oh, there's one over the page, uh, number 10, Duncan Smith. He's the son of Andrew Smith, who was the minister on Dunleary for a good few years. And he's coming back here to do a, a course at the Getty School of Acting. And he's looking for somewhere to stay which is the perennial problem in Dublin. So if you can possibly help out with that, uh, please speak to, uh, well, you can speak to Duncan directly on his email there. So I'll leave you to read through the rest of them yourselves. We're very glad this morning to have Kevin Hargaden back with us. We've known Kevin for a long time. Kevin used to be an Irish mission worker like myself. And then he was a student for the ministry. And at present, he is the newly promoted manager of the Jesuit Center for Faith and Justice. So congratulations for that, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin's big thing is Christian ethics. And uh, he has a lot to say to us. And I think... For anybody just looking at public life in, in any part of the Western world today, you'd be forgiven for wondering where ethics have gone because they just seem to have disappeared completely. And uh, 
I hope that this morning that you, you listen carefully to Kevin because in Christian circles, a lot of the time we'll jump on the hot button topics, things that we get hot under the collar about tend to be things that don't affect us personally. But what Kevin talks about are things that affect all of us and are important for our Christian life. So I hope you'll really give Kevin a good hearing this morning. So I just want to invite Kevin now to come and lead us in worship. Thank you very much, David. That was a a very lovely introduction. I appreciate it a great deal. Uh, when I was an Irish mission worker, we used to get together. There were about 12 of us, and it was always a delight. David and I would end up probably in the corner uh, chatting about the problems in the church and the world, setting everything to right. So it's great to be back here again, and great to see David again. And if you're a guest this morning, you should know that you're especially welcome, because every time I'm here as a guest, I'm made uh, exceptionally welcome. We're going to begin our worship this morning in prayer, so let's pray together. God, our Father, you pour out the spirit of grace and love. This morning, deliver us from cold hearts and wandering thoughts, so that with steady minds and with burning zeal, we may worship you in spirit and truth. Amen. Our first song is Come, Now is the Time to Worship. The reading that we're going to focus on this morning, and that's going to be the theme, hopefully, that the whole service hangs around, is from John chapter 13, and we're going to read it now. It's in, on page 1082, if you're using a pew Bible, and it's John chapter 13, starting from verse 31, if you have your own Bible or one of those fancy apps. So it's page 1082, John chapter 13, and we're starting from verse 31. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. This is a prayer of confession, drawing on Psalm 25, so we can reflect on the past week that's gone, Take a moment of, in silence to listen to God and to talk to God about the week that has gone and to call on his mercy. So let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for your truth and your willingness to teach us. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of our youth or our transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember us for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. 
Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Lord, forgive all my sins. Through Jesus Christ, my friends, forgiveness, is, uh, forgiveness of your sins is proclaimed to you. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We know we can call on him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power, which is at work within us. Amen. So we continue our praise with the song, Lord, I lift your name on high. So just give me a second while I fight with technology. Does that work? Does that work now? Yeah, it does. Right. Um, so Stuart told me during the week, ah, there'll only be like two or three kids. There's no point in preparing a kid's address. <laughs> but, well, he of little faith, eh? Um, in my opinion, it's good to prepare a kid's address even if there aren't going to be any kids because maybe it's because I'm a pretty crappy preacher, but most of the time people get more out of the kid's address than the sermon. But we'll let you decide that at the end of the service. Um, it's summertime and I have a question. Who has had reason to wear their pair of these? Hands up. Yeah? It hasn't been the best summer in Dublin. So have people gone on holidays wearing their flip-flops? Yes? And where particularly were you with your flip-flops? Sligo. Sligo. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the sun shone a little bit? And you went to the beach in flip-flops? And what happened to your feet? Feet got sore, yes. Sore, and I imagine sandy, right? So you wear flip-flops. They're very comfortable in the heat. I vaguely remember from the days when Dublin had heat. And they've got benefits if you're on holidays, if you're by the pool or if you're at the beach. But one of the consequences of, of flip-flops is your feet get filthy. I was going to wear flip-flops today, but I thought that's a bit disrespectful when you're a visitor at another church. So you don't get to see my feet, sadly. So flip-flops are comfortable, but they have the consequence of the dirty feet. My question today is, what is God like? Right? The Sunday school answer that I know from experience, the kids in the front row are excellent answerers. They'll tell me, he's good, he's loving, he's strong, he's powerful, he's faithful, he's merciful, all of the different characteristics of God. Am I right? He's stronger than Superman, he's faster than a cheetah, he's got better eyesight than me. God is maximum powerful. But the story that we're looking at today in the Bible shows us who God is. Now, if I wear flip-flops around where I live in Inchicore, I will get dog poo on my feet because there are lots of dog owners and they don't pick up their dog poo. It's very disgusting. So I don't wear flip-flops. Now imagine if you lived in a city where there was no toilets at all and there are a whole load of animals everywhere. What do you think the, the ground would be like? It'd be pretty manky, right? The sun beats down really hot, 
in Palestine where Jesus lived, they had no toilets, and they had their farm animals inside their compounds, and they went around on donkeys and horses. You can imagine what the streets, which they didn't really have, it was just sand and dirt, were like. So at the end of the day, what would your feet be like in Jesus' city? A lot dirtier than if you're on the beach in Saigo, right? Your feet would be stinking of sweat and dirt and filth. And if you went to your friend's house, what's the first thing they'd do? Clean them. But they wouldn't do it, because that's a filthy job. They'd get their servants to clean your feet, right? Because your feet are dis- I mean, on a good day, my friends, I tell you, my feet are stinky. <laughs> so on a bad day, when the sun is shining and I've got all that dirt on my feet, it's not a pleasant idea. But in the story that we looked at today, what Jesus had just done is that at the end of the day, when all of his friends were sitting down to dinner with their filthy feet, just like this guy up here, but even filthier, Jesus kneeled down, undid the straps of their sandals, and carefully and completely washed their feet. So who is God? What is God like? It is true that God is strong, and it is true that he is truthful, and it is true that he is faithful, and all of those big theological words, very true. But what is God like? The Lord is like a servant who kneels down and undoes the straps of your shoes and cleans your feet. So what that means is that you never have to put on your best face for God. If I was going to meet Michael D. Higgins tomorrow, who's Michael D. Higgins? the president of Ireland. So if I was going to see Michael D. Higgins tomorrow, I'd put on my shirt, I'd probably put on, I probably wouldn't wear my trainers, I'd wear my proper shoes, I might put on a tie, I'd definitely get a haircut, right? I'd put on my best face to meet this very important person. But what we see in in the Gospels is that God is the most important person in the world and he is not someone you need to put on your best face for. You can lounge around in your pajamas, and he is happy to be with you. He is going to clean your feet because they're filthy, and he's going to take care of your sins as well. You don't have to put on any pretense with God. So who is God? What is he like? I want you always to think about all the true theological words, but also think about the dirty feet. All right? So let's pray together. Lord, we ask that over this summer, we would have more opportunities to wear sandals, especially for the kids who are on summer holidays, that we might get some sunshine and some days when real fun can be had. We pray that there would be opportunities to hang out with friends and to play in the park and to go to the sea. We pray for all of those good things. But much more deeply, Lord, we pray that you would grow our faith so that we would know that we don't have to pretend around you, that we don't have to be spotless around you. We come to you to get ourselves clean. We don't have to try and clean ourselves first, Lord. You know us as we are, and you accept us as we are, Lord. Thank you. Amen. So we're going to continue by singing um, a great song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. Thank you, guys. Um, Since it's uh, the summer months, there is a reduced children's program. So uh, three to eight-year-olds are going out to Sunday Club, uh, which I think is upstairs. Yes. And uh, we have a creche downstairs. If you have a little one who needs space, uh, you can go down. Um, But I think the older kids 
stuck with us. Oh, upstairs, I'm told the crash is also upstairs. Stuart's giving me kind of that guy from the uh, airport, you know, who gives signals to the planes as they land. He's very effective there. Um, so three to eight-year-olds can head on out, but they can stay if they want as well. <laughs> And we're going to continue our service by looking more carefully at that passage in John chapter 13. So if you want to keep the uh, text open, it's on page 1082 in the Pew Bibles. So... Um, as... David uh, introduced me, you, you picked up, I'm sure, that as a job, I'm a theologian. So I spend all of my days sitting in a lovely, lovely room, reading great books, and occasionally I'm called out to write something or to speak to people. But for the most part, it's a beautiful life that I lead. And I spend all of my time asking interesting questions, or rather, I join with smarter people down through history who've asked those questions for us before. And one of the big questions in Christianity is, what is it all about? I know the Sunday school answer is Christianity is all about Christ, right? But in the living of Christianity, is it about right belief or is it about right action? Right? This is one of the ways that Christians have debated what it means to be a Christian down through the centuries. And that, th those two clear camps, you can find them, especially if you ever do go online, which I generally discourage people doing, but if you go online, you find that there's a very articulate bunch of people who tell you that Christianity is all about having the right beliefs. And when you look at a text, for example, like Paul's letter to the Romans, he says that we are renewed through the transformation of our mind. So that's very clear evidence that those guys have a pretty good case, that the heart of Christianity is about believing the right things and having good ideas and making sure that theologians like me are very well paid and given all kinds of luxuries, right? But then just as quickly, you're going to find the alternative camp who are just as articulate, and they will say that actually, while beliefs are important, the most important thing about Christianity is our actions. Faith is one thing, but it's got to be demonstrated indeed. And those guys are able to quote from James, who was the brother of Jesus, and that's a pretty good authenticity there, authentication. He says the faith without works is dead. So it looks like both of these camps have justification. The passage that we read earlier this morning is just over 100 words long, and it is filled to the brim with information about what Christianity is all about. And I think by paying close attention to it, we're able to resolve this age-old debate about whether Christianity is about right belief or whether it's about right action. And the answer is, it's about neither. It's about love. And when I say Christianity is about love, that's a banal cliche, and you're all ready to go to sleep. What I'm going to try and do this morning is show you that the sentence, Christianity is about love, is a lot more complicated and a lot more interesting than people in 21st century Ireland might think it is. But first, let's pray together. Lord, you have given us your good word, which is good news to us. We need your help to hear it. Through your spirit, rouse us from our slumber. Soften our hearts and sharpen our minds so that we will be able to hear from you as individuals and as a community how this text is good news for us. 
Speak to us, Lord, that we might hear. Amen. So the context for this passage is the famous foot washing scene. I am already deficient in my job. How's that? There we go. The famous foot washing scene. So life, this is what we were talking about during the children's sermon. Life in first century Palestine was a lot messier than even life in modern day in Shakur, where I have to deal with the dog poo everywhere, and I now have a kind of quiet prejudice against dog owners. I'm sorry if you're a dog owner. I'm sure you're the responsible kind who picks up after themselves, but I will reserve judgment until I see the evidence, because <laughs> you walk around the city and it seems like, I don't know, we've got these vandals living amongst us. So life in Inchicore is pretty messy. It's got nothing on first century Palestine. In that desert heat with that sand, with the farm animals, with the donkeys, with the lack of any kind of pavement or any kind of road system, your feet got filthy. If you were ri rich enough to have sandals in the first place, of course, you were, you were better off than most people. And when Jesus kneels down to wash the feet of his disciples, he is not just engaging in one simple act of kindness. He is overturning the entire hierarchy that his apostles and indeed his entire society would have assumed was natural. People at the top get served. People at the bottom do the service. So if the Lord and the teacher is the one who kneels down and cleans your feet, well, everything has turned upside down. So the context for this passage is very important for us to understand because when Jesus talks about love, he's not talking about it in the way that um, you know, Justin Bieber sings about love in a pop song. He's talking about this revolutionary, politically potent act where the guy at the top of the hierarchy chooses to put himself at the bottom of the hierarchy. I worked in a church once and I used to uh, annoy the minister on a daily basis with kind of ponderings and questions. And one of them was, uh, it says here in John 13 that we're meant to do this all the time. How come we never do it? And I was that annoying kind of person in their 20s who had all of the answers, and my, my minister, Keith, was very patient with me and uh, would often put it back on me and say, look, if, if you want to start foot washing on Sundays, go right on ahead. And, of course, my enthusiasm would then disappear. It's all well and good to talk about this revolutionary overturning of the natural hierarchies that Jesus presents us, but it's a whole other thing to actually engage in it. But I want to start this morning by suggesting that the, to the extent that we let these passages that Jesus gives us, these teachings that Jesus offers, offers us, to the extent that we let them kind of fall off our agenda, that we say that was true for them but not for us, or that was metaphorical, or that was just incidental, to the extent that we don't pay attention to the clear instruction of our Lord here, we are neutering ourselves. David talked at the start of the service about the kind of ethical vacuum and the philosophical quagmire that we exist in in the 21st century in the Western world. Christianity surely has something to say about that. We have lots of things to say about that. I can roll out 20 different bishops who can opine at length about the ethical vacuum, but none of them will ever get down on their knees, undo the straps of our sandals, and wash our feet. So I want to start by saying that when Jesus talks about love, that's what he is talking about, an actual action that is seen as humiliating. The leader humiliates themselves by going lower than their followers. So if you want to think about what it means to be a Christian who loves in this world, I want to suggest that you've got to find ways in which you can humiliate the natural rights that you possess 
and extend your resources in service of people who the rest of the world would think ought to serve you. There are very obvious and concrete examples of this around what we do with our money, around what we do with our skills, and around what we do with our voices, our authority. So do you systematically, carefully, as a spiritual practice, cut aside some of your excess wealth to give to your brothers and sisters here in this church who are in need? Do you, as a spiritual practice, choose to keep your mouth shut sometimes so that other people who don't often get to speak can be heard? These are very concrete examples of how we can follow through the upside-down politics of foot washing. Okay, so that's my context. I've gone wildly off my script. You're going to be here for hours if I continue that way. So I'll get back on track. The main point here is that this is the context. If the king serves, what kind of kingdom do we live in? And to the extent that the church kind of chooses, like when I take my glasses off, I know there are people in the room, but I couldn't identify any of you. And that's the way the church is when we ask these kinds of questions. We want to bring them sharply into focus. What does it mean for us to be citizens of a kingdom where the king becomes the servant? For you to be great in that kingdom, you're going to make yourself low. That's going to mean different things for different people. That's something you've got to work out with your friends here in this church and with the Holy Spirit. But that's what we've got to start doing if we want to see the revival of Christianity in the Western world. We've got to start taking the concrete instructions that Jesus has given us in the gospel and put them into practice in our place. So, in verse 34, to get back on track, because, you know, it's important to get back on track. In verse 34, Jesus gives us a command. It is not advice. It is an instruction. Love one another. It is because Jesus' teaching has so thoroughly influenced our culture in which we live, this hyper-capitalist, neoliberal, post-modern, post-Christian, post-secular, post-everything age, that this sentiment can appear banal or obvious. Love is the answer, sings us thousand crappy pop songs, and when I say love one another, that's what you hear. But while recognizing that I don't have time to flesh this out with academic rigor, I think it is fair to say that Jesus' focus on love is unique in the history of philosophy. Epicurus taught that life's meaning was to be found in happiness. Plato advised truth. Aristotle recommended virtue. Jesus rejects none of those answers, but his is distinctively different. Buddha advised detachment, and Muhammad preached submission. The Bhagavad Gita says life is all about dharma, and Dianetics says life is all about thetans. Nietzsche, the most influential of all of the modern thinkers, despised Jesus' focus on love. He declared that when the gospel began to spread, that meant that, quote, everything pitiful, everything suffering from itself, everything tormented by base feelings, the whole ghetto world of the soul suddenly became on top. When Jesus says, love one another, I need you to consciously and carefully pause all of the cultural training that you have received all of your life that domesticates and dilutes this message, and hear these words again for the fresh and revolutionary proclamation that they are. Socrates could not arrive at them, and Confucius could not formulate them. Love one another is a remarkable banner under which we march. 
When Jesus says love, he does not mean a warm feeling. He does not mean an erotic passion. He does not mean a self-interested investment in the other. He doesn't mean a calculated commitment to collaboration. When Jesus says love, he means kneeling down, undoing the straps on these crap-stained feet, and carefully and gently making those feet clean. When Jesus says love, he means being betrayed by his friends, sold into slavery, falsely accused, corrupt, corruptly convicted, tortured, stripped, humiliated, left to suffocate under the weight of his own body in the hot noonday sun. He says, love one another as I have loved you. This is many things, but it is not a pop song. And he says, if we do that, the world will know it. This is not just a command. This that we have here in John 13 is our missionary plan. This is how the church is meant to be in the world. To the extent that the strong become weak to strengthen the weak, to the extent that the clean become filthy to bathe the exhausted, to the extent that the rich become poor to enrich the impoverished, to that extent, the world will know us as his followers. Now, I know this is slightly faulty logic, but the world at the moment, in our part of the world, doesn't see us as the followers of the Lord of the universe. And there are lots of different ways you can deal with the decline of the church. But I propose that this is the best way to work backwards from the fact that the world doesn't see us as the followers of the one true Lord. And for us to consider whether or not that's because we're not following through on the foot-washing politics that we are commanded to. Many churches mimic other social institutions by having, for example, cliques, you know, subgroups based around interests. You'll find that the people who come from Spanish-speaking South America all hang out together, or you'll find that the people who love golf all hang out together, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But in the Gospels, what we find is Jesus is always reaching out to the other, to the person who is radically different. So what does foot-washing politics mean for you? It means, do you reach out to the person who's radically different from you? Do young people reach out to old people? Do old people reach out to young people? Do we engage in that risky business of walking across the room and introducing ourselves in friendship to somebody who is different from us? We live in a society that is currently arranged so that it's easy for the rich to get richer and really very difficult for the poor to get any kind of stability. So, the question from love one another is, do you habitually take from your surplus and give to those who are in deficit? For the first 1900 years of Christianity, it was very clear, we all understood, that if you have more than you need in the church, you are stealing from your brother and sister. And it's only in the last 100 years that we've decided that if you earned it, you can keep it. <laughs> that is not the gospel. So if you have surplus, why not spend it on someone who has need? I promise you that that will gain a much greater reward in heaven. Oh, Jesus says a hundred times more than anything the stock market can give you. One more practical example of this. We're trained to put ourselves first, to seek the most influence, to have the most power. So in this church, in how decisions are made, if you are someone who has power, do you ever step away 
from the microphone and invite someone who would never be allowed to speak to have their say. That would be one practical outworking of how this love one another works out in the church. So in terms of your friendship, in terms of your resources, in terms of your influence, these are ways that we can mimic the foot-washing revolutionary power of Jesus' love. Which brings me to my conclusion, which I rewrote last night because I realized it was not good enough for you guys. And when you rewrite something right beforehand, you know, the one, like it's a scientific fact, this will definitely not be good enough for you guys, but we'll give it, give it our best shot, right? So to go back to my first question, if love is the thing, what's more important, right actions or right beliefs? In a way, it's neither. It's not that your beliefs don't matter. I'm a theologian. I think they really matter. And it's not that your actions don't, don't count. I run a social justice center. I think your actions really do count. But it's the you that is largely irrelevant there. It doesn't matter so much if your actions are right and if your beliefs are right. What matters is that Jesus' actions are right and Jesus' uh, beliefs are right. The text hangs around the phrase, as I have loved you. And the love of Jesus is the perfect combination of his right action and his right beliefs. If you think about all of the saving acts of Jesus, we combine them together, everything he did to save the world. We think of John chapter 3, verse 17. The Son did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. There are actions that he did that were perfectly righteous. And where, where was the motivation for that? Of course, it's in his right beliefs. We see this in the, in the passage when he talks about the glorification of the Father through the actions of the Son. He knew that the Father would be glorified through the Son if the Son was obedient to the Father. So Jesus is fully God and fully man, and you can't separate his right action from his right beliefs. You and I, we have beliefs and we don't follow them through, right? Paul talks about this in Romans 7, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. He says that we, we, the good we want to do, we don't do. And the bad we don't want to do, we do do. This is the human condition. I have a belief that it's very bad to foul the street with my dog poo, but then I say, well, I've got to get home to watch the Women's World Cup final. Uh, someone else can clean that up. All of us, all of the time, you and I, our beliefs and our actions, they don't necessarily mix, right? You have all kinds of beliefs that you don't follow through on. And you have all kinds of actions that you can't justify. That's because you're a fallen human being. It's because uh, loads of your beliefs are incoherent. They clash with each other. And loads of your actions aren't even thought through at all. They're just impulse reactions, right? With God, there is no such separation between what he wills and what he does. So when Jesus wills to do something, it is done. We know this from Genesis. Let there be. And there was. And what is his verdict at the end of creation? God says it is good. So Jesus' actions are righteous and perfect, and Jesus' beliefs are true and solid, and he believes that this world is good, and he believes you are good, and so he acts to save the world, right? It's not about your right beliefs and your right actions. It's about the fact that we can trust in his right belief and his right actions. To imagine that the debate in Christianity is about right action and right belief is to place ourselves at the center of the drama, which is the classic thing that religious people do. They make themselves the most important person in the room. To think it all hinges on you 
and your remarkable morality and your impeccable intellect, it's kind of absurd. Jesus knows you. He knows that at your best, you are morally compromised. And he knows better than any of us can know that we do not know the extent to which we do not know what we do not know. There's a lot of no's there. That's epistemology, like the third year philosophy course. But it's sufficient to say that Jesus knows what you don't know. So he knows that you're morally frail and he knows that you're intellectually frail. He's not coming to you because you are good. And he is not coming to you because you are smart. He's not coming to you because your feet are clean. He's ready to kneel down and clean whatever is filthy. It is not about you. It is about the fact that you can rely utterly on him. There is nothing in your past so grotesque that he cannot restore it. And there is no mediocrity in your presence that can deter him. There is no faulty logic or there is no selfish greed that will obstruct him from his purposes in redeeming you. This morning, he has come to clean your feet. Accept that offer. The Christian understanding of love is unique because Jesus tells us that it is shaped like the cross. We see this in the text in verse 32. God will glorify the Son in himself. Jesus is the teacher and the Lord. He is the master of the universe, the word through which the cosmos was created and is sustained. And it is him who humbles himself to clean your feet. He humbles himself to death on the cross. We do not achieve love this perfect integrity between right action and right belief, because of our excellence, we fail at it. And his excellence makes a bridge for us. He has been making a way for us from before we were even born. If you feel today like you are a failure in the task of love, know that you are especially and most keenly the person that Jesus calls to this morning. God's glory shone most brightly in his son in the darkest hour, when he was cast out by his friends, cast outside the city, cast outside the nation, cast outside the law, and left to die as unloved, unlovable, and unlovely. But here, in the church, the strong serve the weak, and failures are welcomed by the one who is victorious over death. If you today think of yourself as in any way unloved, unlovable and unlovely, know that God glorified the Son in just that situation. The most important of eyes gaze upon you with delight. He believes you are good. You were fearfully and wonderfully made by him, and his actions are good. He stitched you together in the darkness of your mother's womb, and he sustains you today with the very breath in your lungs. The Son of God is not just your teacher, He's not just your creator. He is not just your Lord. He is your savior and your friend. Revel in that fact today. Receive that love. Accept that invitation to have him make your feet clean. And when you are full to the brim with the love that he has, it will just spill out of you. If you feel, if you feel the truth of his stance towards you, the love will just come out of you. And it will... Be refreshing to your friends and to your family and to strangers and even to enemies. And the world 
will know that you are his. Let us pray. Lord, you have loved us. You have loved us from before we even were. And you are faithful and steadfast so that you love us now and we can be certain that you will love us in the future. May we luxuriate in that love this morning. May your right action and right belief align us with your kingdom so that we might be people who in our own ways, in our own places, are willing to kneel down and wash the feet of others. Make us followers who the world can recognize as yours. Amen. So we're going to continue with my favorite hymn, which is Come Thou Fount. And then we'll move into a time of prayer for the needs of the world. In Psalm 116, we read, What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will give what I have promised in the presence of all God's people. Lord, we ask that you will accept these offerings and that they will help to serve your kingdom agenda here in Adelaide Road and far around the world. May we feel this offering for what it is, some of the best, juiciest, wisest spending of our hard-earned money we can possibly make. And this morning, Lord, we're gathered to praise you, but our hearts are full of concerns for the world, for our neighbours, for ourselves, and we bring them to you now. Away from the constant agitation of our 24-hour news cycle, it feels, Lord, in moments of clarity as if the most important prayer for the world that we could possibly pray is to do with the world itself that you have given us to cultivate and to steward and to keep. In this age of climate breakdown and ecosystem breakdown, when there are signs all around us that our care has been deficient, and that creatures that you have lovingly and delightedly created are going extinct left, right, and center. Lord, we pray for a change of our hearts. This is like in our sermon. We, we know that something is going very wrong. But very few of us are doing anything to change the ways that we are living. We don't even know where to begin, Lord. It's like we need a conversion of creation care. Lord, we pray that as Christians we would be people who would take seriously the, the command that you gave us right at the very beginning to care for your earth. And Lord, closer to home in terms of questions that relate to this place, Ireland, we pray for the negotiations that are ongoing to do with Brexit. We pray that they would be resolved in a way that protects the economies and protects the political arrangements. But most of all, we pray that they would protect the peace in Northern Ireland. We, we thank you that, relatively speaking, the parade season was not too tumultuous. We pray that that would continue and that the fragile cessation of conflict that has held for a couple of decades in the North would not be put in danger by these um, political machinations taking place in London. We pray that the Irish and the British and the European negotiators would be wise and prudent. Give them the creativity and the courage to resolve this problem. 
And finally, Lord, closer again to home here on the streets of Dublin, it's impossible to miss the hundreds of people who are sleeping rough, people who are living by tents in the canals, thousands of children living in hotels and B&Bs and the strangely named homeless hubs. We're in the midst of a massive housing crisis that doesn't just apply to the people who are homeless, but to people who are renting and people who are trying to buy. And Lord, the home is such a basic need, and how can a country that's so wealthy fail so catastrophically to offer it? So we pray for our political leaders, especially those who are in power, that they would, again, have a change of heart and that the policies that they've pursued that clearly just don't work, Lord, that they would pursue a different plan. Whatever has to happen, Lord, so that the almost 4,000 children in this country who are homeless would find a home and that the 10,000 people who are officially homeless, Lord, would have a place that they can rely on and call their own, where kids can see their parents cook and do their homework and have their friends over, all the basics that can be so easily taken for granted. Lord, we pray for wisdom in our leaders so that they would see the trauma that this creates and creativity from our leaders, our civil servants, everybody involved, so that a real resolution will be achieved. Gracious God, accept all of these prayers offered in Jesus' name and give us now the strength to wait patiently for the answers and to live faithfully in response to your call. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our closing hymn is Be Thou My Vision. If you're able to, please do stick around for tea and coffee, which is served downstairs after the service. It's served upstairs. <laughs> Stuart, thank you very much. It's served upstairs. Please do stick around for tea and coffee. And our final hymn is Be Thou My Vision. And we close by saying the benediction, which is a good word to each other. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, evermore. Amen.